God invites us to find joy in the birth of a baby. As uh, simple as that sounds, the angels declare, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people for today in the city of David. A Savior has been born. And so uh, the gospel is news that brings joy. It's uh, the announcement of an event which is designed to cause delight. What is it that God became human to bring humanity back to God? And we see that tonight from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Let me invite you to hear, uh, and perhaps hear again, not for the first time this Christmas season, uh, this account of the coming of our Savior. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Yeah, I saw an astonishing thing on TV this weekend. It was uh, an occurrence at a basketball game. North Carolina's coach, Roy Williams, Uh, They were playing against Texas, and during a timeout, he, in suit and tie, got down on the floor in the middle of uh, the the court uh, to wipe his players' sweat off the floor. 
And you could, you could hear on the video I saw, the crowd began to murmur as he walked out there. And as he got down on his knees and was wiping, people began to laugh and chuckle and, and, and uh, say, aha, and they began to clap and applaud. They, they were astonished. They were shocked. That's not the job the head coach of North Carolina does. It's not really the job his assistant, assistant coach is supposed to do. I mean, they have, they have towel boys to do that job. One, so high, stooping so low to serve. It delighted those who witnessed it. We have far greater reason for delight, my friends, this night. As we think of this one who stooped down out of heaven to become a baby upon the earth. And Luke gives us the record of his birth. He asserts the full humanity of Jesus and he proclaims the purpose for which he came, all designed for our joy. God became man to bring mankind back to God. It's, it's not, under, not hard to understand those words. Uh, it's not under, uh, hard to understand that he is God, to say the words when the Bible says, as the angels say, that the one who is born to you is Christ the Lord, they mean God himself. They mean nothing else than that. We sang of it in O Come All Ye Faithful. God of God, light of light. Uh, Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created. All that is is, uh, Wesley's way of saying, I think it's Wesley. Uh, Might be wrong on that one. Uh, his way of saying he's, he's, he's God, he's true God. And yet he becomes a man. He was already God, but he was not yet man. He became a man without ceasing to be God. Uh, if Jesus is not a man as well as God, then God has not come all the way to us. And we sang of that, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate, enfleshed deity, pleased as man, as a man, with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus, our God with us. And so he's God and he's man. Uh, together in one person, the Lord of all becomes the servant of all. As Augustine put it, he became what he was not without ceasing to be what he already was. Now that, that's not hard to understand in terms of the words, but the implications of that will blow your mind. C.S. Lewis said it's something like this. God becoming like one of us is like one of us becoming a slug on the garden path after a rain. What a drop in social status that would be for us. Yet what he did was far greater. And so the gospel, when we talk about good news, a a proclamation of an event that brings joy, we're not talking about ideas and philosophy and abstractions. We're talking about biology. We're talking about enfleshment. Um, And so it's designed to bring us joy. And I want to talk to you tonight about three ways this passage highlights for us how it brings us joy. The record, uh, the, the, the record of his birth is designed to give you joy in God's reliability. The assertion of his humanity is designed to give you joy in Christ's sympathy. And the proclamation of his purpose is designed to give you joy in Christ's sin-bearing. 
Let me talk you through those three things. Uh, joy in God's reliability. What, what do you mean by that? What Luke is telling us is, is that God did what God said God would do. That this has all happened according to Scripture in fulfillment of prophecy. We could pile them up. Let me just highlight a few. Last week we looked at one from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had turned their back upon God from the very moment of our first parents' life together, thumbing their nose at their Father in heaven, saying, no, God says, I will crush the serpent who deceived you. I will defeat the enemy who enticed you to rebel with me against God. God says that the woman will have a seed who will crush the head of the serpent. So right there you have this idea that the Savior who's coming to humanity is not going to be angelic. It's going to be human. It's going to be the seed of the woman. Or the prophecy in Isaiah, just back from where we were reading in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 It says that the Savior will be be born of a virgin. Listen to 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So so the Savior is going to be human, born of a virgin, going to be a male human. Isaiah 9 verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the Savior is going to be born in Bethlehem. Micah tells you that. In Micah chapter 5, 700 years. Again, Isaiah is 700 years. Micah is approximately the same. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the Scriptures promise this. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth... For me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And Luke is telling you that they end up in Bethlehem and the baby, the male child, the the human being God has promised, has come. And so Luke is saying, God will do what God says he will do. You, therefore, can depend on him. He's utterly reliable. In fact, it happened according to Scripture. It not just happened to fulfill uh, the prophecies, but it happened when Caesar Augustus was uh, calling for a census in the Roman-occupied world. Luke, in this passage, roots all of this, not just as fulfillment of history uh, and prophecy, but in real history. He goes out of his way to give you the details of when this event happened. He's a careful historian. Luke himself is a physician who knows how important it is when you are dealing with important things to get it right. He's used to dealing with people and administering medicine the right way, the right amount. And and as a historian, he handles his material the same way. He gives careful attention. And what we know about Luke is this, that there has never been any archaeological discovery that has ever contradicted Luke. Over the course of decades, we have uncovered things that helped us find that Luke was true when we had no other evidence for it. But nothing has ever contradicted this 
historian. This is not a myth. This is not a fable. Luke is telling you it's not a parable. Caesar Augustus. This is Julius Caesar's nephew. He was the favored nephew. He got the inheritance and the title. Uh, This happened in a real place and time. Now he's telling you that Caesar Augustus was uh, Caesar calling for a census and reminding you that uh, why, why that was. Uh, you did, basically did it for two reasons. You did it for tax purposes. You want to know how many people you have so you can get the money. I mean, nothing's changed in thousands of years. And you also did it for military purposes. You wanted to know who the men were that you could draft to serve in your army. And so here is Caesar Augustus trying to build his kingdom all the while not realizing that God through him is building an everlasting kingdom, a far greater kingdom. And all of this is a reminder that God is absolutely sovereign over the details of the birth of Christ. You know, if you're a faithful Jew and you believe in the coming Messiah, and you find out that the Messiah is coming into the world, and he's going to be born to a virgin named Mary, married to a man named Joseph, and you find out that they live in Nazareth, and she's nine months pregnant, you're, you're scratching your head asking the question, how is it that they're ever going to get to Bethlehem to have this baby born in the proper place? I mean, who in the right mind would travel by mule 90 miles? We might do it by car in our day. But nine months pregnant, except that they were, they were forced to. They must go to their own hometown is how the decree read. That was, it was a wise old way for the rulers to get it done. I mean, who, who doesn't like a party? Who doesn't like a family reunion? Uh, we'll do the census if we get everybody together. It was the first reunion at Christmas time. But, but here's the thing. You might be scratching your head. Micah says the baby's going to be born in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph are in Nazareth. You might be scratching your head. I don't know how this is going to get done, but you're not to worry. God is on his throne. And God will do what he says he will do. And God is in charge of all things. And Caesar Augustus makes his plans. And he he makes his census. And all the while he's serving the greater purposes of the true king of kings now look how is any of that helpful to us it's helpful in one way in this respect not only is the timing of the birth of christ and the location of the birth of christ in god's plan because god is concerned for every detail of his life but the bible says that god's watchful care is over all of us and it's just as extensive That it is just as comprehensive that all the days ordained for us were written in his book before one of them came to to be. In fact, Jesus will say it to you this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He'll say that not a hair of your head can fall to the ground, but by the will of your Father in heaven. God is concerned for every detail of everyone's Life, even when we don't sense it, even when we don't realize it. And it's, it's actually one of the great ironies of life that the very time you need to most believe that God is involved in the timing in your life, that's the time it's hardest to believe 
that he's involved in the timing of your life because some circumstances come that has made it hard to believe. And Luke is reminding us that, that whatever Caesar Augustus thought he was doing, God was in control. God is reliable. He's dependable. This was the fourth week for our family for my car to be in the shop. I've been driving around this donated vehicle. It's a great car. This donated vehicle to Covenant Church in Fayetteville for anybody who's got a car in the shop and needs a ride. And Well, for the fourth week, the first time, some five weeks ago, that had this massive fluid leak. Took it in, turned out it was going to be, you know, the water pump, and of course then the timing belt has to come off, and it's hours and hours of labor, and okay, well, all right, do we do it or not? It's a 93. Fix it or not? All right, well, let's... Let's hope we get another year out of it. Let's do it. And a week later, it's leaking fluid. And I take it in, and, and you know, after a day or two, he finally gets to it. I fear not. It's just a clamp. We need to tighten, you know, and fix it. All right, so I pick it up. So then the next week, I'm driving, and it's, it just quits on, on Highway 16 Weddington, just near the church. It just absolutely stops while I'm driving. I mean, it, engine turns off. I coast into the Arvest and leave it there and get it towed to the guy again, and he, they dig around for hours and hours of, of, of labor time to find some loose wiring, which they repair easily. And then I get it back and drive it home, and it's gushing liquid again. For which he calls me days later after the tow and tells me, no worries, good news, it's just a clamp that needs to be tightened. Now, you may be saying to me, you know, it might be time to think about getting a new car. 93 is pretty old. It might be, but having put so much in at this point, I'm in. (laughs) I expect to get a whole year out of that car at least. You might be saying to me, well, maybe it's time to get a new mechanic. Well, I don't know. I've used them for 10 years and I found them reliable, but, but, but things in this world ultimately aren't entirely dependable. Stuff breaks. Things happen. This is not the way the world was designed to be, but there is one thing in this world that you can depend on, and that is this, that God will do what God says he will do, and God will be to you who God says he will be to you. He is king, he is on his throne, and you can depend on him. An old bishop named J.C. Ryle says this about this passage, let us ever rest our souls on the thought that our times are in God's hands. He knows the best reason for sending help to his church and new light to the world. Let us beware of giving way to over-anxiety about the course of events around us as if we knew better than the King of Kings when relief should come. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer in the 1500s, had a friend named Philip Philip Melanchthon, who also was a minister, and they partnered together in a lot of things. But Philip was a a constant worrier, always filled with anxiety. And Luther, on many occasions, would say to him, Cease, Philip, from trying to govern the world. Jesus is on his throne. He's reliable. And you can depend on him. That's the first thing. Find joy in God's reliability. Secondly, find joy in Christ's sympathy. 
Luke asserts here in unmistakable terms that Jesus was really human. He took upon himself all that is essential to humanity. A body, a soul with a mind and will and affections and a person. But he's like us in every way yet without sin. It's the one way in which he is different from us. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, infinite and yet an infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet nursing at a woman's breast, supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in his mother's arms, heir of all things, and yet the carpenter's despised son. He is, friends. He's God and he's man. He's truly man. It's not that he just appeared to be human or seemed to be human, but he was really a ghost. He became touchable, visible, and woundable flesh and blood. He had the same biochemical composition as you and I, the same anatomy and physiology of any boy, the same central nervous system. And the same sensitivity to pain. In innumerable ways, therefore, he understands us. He understands us from the inside out. He knows what it's like to be human. And it's impossible for him not to sympathize with us. He's, just to take some examples, he's, he's a firstborn son, Luke reminds you. Mary will have other children with Joseph He understood what it was like to have sibling rivalry, not by his jealousy and envy, but undoubtedly by his siblings. He bore the weight of family responsibility in his own family. After Joseph dies and at the cross when he's dying, he's responsible to see that his mother Mary is cared for. He knows what it's like to take care of her yet he has all this responsibility there are points in the gospels where his family thinks he's out of his mind and crazy they don't believe him Uh, they don't take him seriously he gets it he knows what it's like to have lost a parent his father joseph undoubtedly married mary when she was young probably a teenager probably a young teenager And it's very likely, being Jewish, that he was a few years older, but not likely much. And yet, by the time Jesus is an adult male, Joseph is nowhere to be found in the gospel stories. The Bible just simply doesn't tell us what happened to his father. We can certainly presume that he had died. And Jesus, here at the end of his life, is caring for an elderly parent, even as he prepares for his own death. He understands. He grew up in a neighborhood and was undoubtedly misunderstood. You know, perhaps some of the kids catching wind of the story, you know, about how Mary conceived, called him the bastard child. Of course, undoubtedly. But then all the more, how about those kids who said that they believed that Jesus was special, that he was actually conceived by the Holy Spirit In the womb of Mary. How many times might those children, pure speculation, but how many times might those kids have said, come on Jesus, exercise your powers if you're special. 
And yet in ways that God never intended him to exercise those powers. And how they might have taunted him that he didn't put on a show. He's a sinless child. (laughs) Sinless child, undoubtedly disciplined by parents. He is the creator, actually created. For things he has not done wrong, but they believe he has. Through no fault of his own, in the weakness of their wisdom as failing parents, they undoubtedly misunderstood situations, misread what had happened, assumed perhaps that Jesus had done wrong when it was actually his brothers who had done wrong. And undoubtedly he had fallen short of their parental expectations, though he had never fallen short of God the Father's. Fatherly, godly expectations. Jesus understands family dynamics. The best we can assume, as I said, is that he grew up as a carpenter in his father's house. Joseph, being a carpenter, undoubtedly Jesus made things. He worked with his hands. He knew what a day's wages was. He undoubtedly worked with clients. He undoubtedly dealt with unsavory types in business. Looking to make a profit at his expense. He gets it. Jesus knew the sorrow of bereavement at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. When he wept at the grave. He shared the grief of his own family when his own cousin John was murdered. He understands loss. He felt afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of his life as he's preparing to be um, abandoned by his disciples, uh, turned over to the authorities, falsely accused, crucified, and to come before a holy God and bear wrath for sin. He wept tears of blood as he anticipated the horror of that. He suffered cruelty at the hands of his own creatures who mocked him, spat in his face, pulled his hair, blistered his back, stripped him naked, nailed nails through his extremities, pinned him to a post, and thrust him through with a spear. Jesus understands pain and in the end he was abandoned by his friends and disciples in the moment of his deepest trouble when he was praying they fell asleep though he'd said please stay awake I need some company and when he was arrested arrested they left him and they denied him to his face Jesus understands and so I would simply say this he was really human and he really gets you and so whatever whatever pain or sorrow whatever loss or weakness whatever humiliation abuse abandonment poverty we have faced Jesus gets it from the inside out in distant He's not unaffected. He can help you. He sympathizes with you. Find your joy in that sympathy as a faithful high priest, the Bible says, who represents 
people to God, he represents you perfectly. And he can minister all that your trouble needs. And finally, find joy in Christ's sin-bearing. There's one last thing I want you to see in the gospel, and it's the, the grace of God revealed in this gospel. God's strategy, you understand, for men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, language, and people group throughout the world is this. God's strategy to rescue them is simply this. I'm going to send my son into the world to live a fully divine and fully human life, to grow up and die in their place. That's it. Christ becoming fully man to save man fully. If Jesus had not been a man, he could not have died in our place and paid the penalty that was due us. It's humanity that sinned. It's humanity that must pay the penalty of sin. And Jesus must be human to die the death that we deserve The writer of the book of Hebrews says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people, to turn away the wrath of God by bearing it, by satisfying justice for God's people, for all who look to him, so I want to say this is the most surprising thing in the world. It's absolutely different from anything else you'll find anywhere else in religion. Every other religion ultimately really boils down to this. It's a dangerous world out there. God is a righteous God. Now let me give you some good advice. Be good and you'll be accepted by God. Basically, uh, they say it in different ways. They'll tweak it one way or the other. But it basically boils down to this. Whatever God you're going to face is a righteous God, and you need to be right. Now, here's what you need to do. Go be good. Go do these things. And here in the gospel, do you you realize as we read it? Here in the gospel, the story of our salvation, what is it God says to us? Do absolutely nothing. Simply see God send his own son to the world to do for you. Stand back and watch God rescue you. By the performance of the Savior. Just look to Him. Rest in Him. Be accepted by Him. Through Him. In so many of the world religions today, there are programs that must make pilgrimages to perform in order to be right with God. you got to go to some special place. you got to put in an appearance at some special place to be right with God. But in Luke... There is no pilgrimage that you and I are commanded to make. The only pilgrimage here that saves is the pilgrimage God made from heaven to Mary's womb to this earth. So I would say to you tonight, do you feel unworthy before God because you aren't right? You aren't right. You are unworthy. The only thing we offer to God is Christ and his merits. And then we're right with God through Christ. He graciously accepts us. But do you feel unworthy of that sacrifice for you that this Savior is 
for you, then I would say to you that consider this, consider the first people to find joy in him. Who were they? They were shepherds. Not the pleasant people you see depicted in sentimental Christmas cards, but dirty, smelly, social outcasts. Shepherds are not the elite in that day. They weren't even really liked by regular people. They were partly religiously, ceremonially unclean. They couldn't go to the temple uh, because of the animals and the dung and the death. And uh, because they couldn't get to the temple, they couldn't get clean. And so they were, they were outside society in so many ways. And they were also the people everybody looked at and said, watch out for them. You know, they pastured other people's land. You know, we don't really know where they got all their sheep. I think they might have gotten some of mine. Their testimony in court was considered unreliable and they were not allowed to bear witness in court. These are not the high society. They're the lowest of the low, poor, outcast, frowned on, distrusted, unreliable. And these are the people God entrusts the message of his coming to earth to. If the message had come to the elite, humble people would doubt it was for them. But since it came to the humble... The only thing standing in the way of the elite is pride. It's all that stands in your way of this Savior. God says the good news is for the shepherd's joy and for all the people. It is designed for your joy. Find your joy in the dependability, reliability of God, in the sympathy of Christ. And in the sin-bearing of your Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Oh, may he be large in our eyes. And may we find rest in him. Amen. Friends, let's close and respond to God by singing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let's stand.